Old Testament lesson comes from Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah 2 is one of many passages in the prophets that connect the theme of sexual immorality and idolatry. Uh, And so watch for how Jeremiah is connecting those two themes in how he speaks to Israel and how he speaks to Jerusalem. Hear now the word of our God from Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tapanus have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago... I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. A wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. 
Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, It is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, You are my father, and to a stone, You gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us! But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, We are free, we will come no more to you? Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in. Yet in spite of all these things you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it too you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. By the way, the proper response to this is not, uh, it would be, Lord, have mercy. So this is the word of the Lord. Lord, have mercy. There's, I mean, yes, you can say thanks be to God for his word always. That's always true. But when, when you hear an oracle of judgment, the proper response is, Lord, have mercy. Why is it that the prophets so regularly weave together these themes of adultery and idolatry? Why is worshiping other gods referred to in the language of sexual infidelity? The simple answer is because sexual union, the two becoming one flesh, is supposed to be a picture of Christ and his bride. Christ and the church. Christ and us. There is no human relation more intimate. God made us for himself. Paul will say that the body is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord, the Lord Jesus, for the body. It's not just that, that worshiping other gods is spiritual adultery. It's also that worshiping the true God is what the picture is for. You see, so often we get so distracted by, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, that we lose sight of, what is it for? What is the true thing? What is the good thing? What is the beautiful thing that we should be doing? And as we'll see, when, when Paul talks about food, he says food is for the body, uh, is for the stomach, and the stomach for food. But when Paul talks about sex, he doesn't say that Sex is for marriage, and marriage is for sex. He says that the body 
with respect to uh, the body was not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now, we saw this when we went through the book of Leviticus last spring, the, the rules for the clean, about clean and unclean, holy and profane, and particularly regarding sexual matters, are what surround Leviticus 16, the center of the book of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, where God brings his people to himself, that they might be one with him. Now, what we'll see in 1 Thessalonians is that while the Old Testament rituals are no longer in force, the whole point of clean and unclean, holy and profane, was to show us Jesus. In fact, that's why I need to read Jeremiah 3, verse 1, before we go on. If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. A man would have to be crazy to take his wife back after that. And our God is just a little crazy. There you go. There you go. Thanks be to God. Our God is a little crazy because even though we spurned him so many times, yet he did not abandon us and leave us to ourselves and our own devices. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Hear now the word of our God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you want to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord. We have been seeing throughout First Thessalonians that Paul's central theme is faith, hope, and love. We are to keep believing God in our work of faith. We are to keep loving God and neighbor in our labor of love. And all of this because of our steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul has said in the previous chapter, he, what is lacking in our faith is simply endurance. What is lacking in our faith is that our faith has not yet persevered to the end. Faith comes in all different sorts of shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's strong faith. Sometimes it's weak faith. Sometimes it's confident faith. Sometimes it's doubting faith. 
But in whatever shape or form faith may take, what is lacking is that it has not yet persevered to the end. And that is why hope is so important in Paul's letter. Now, he didn't use the word hope in chapter 3, but the concept of hope was very much where he ended in verses 11 to 13, which he spelled out in verse 13, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul thinks of the Christian life as lived out at the intersection of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We share in the sufferings of Christ. We share in his trials and tribulation. But we also share in his resurrection glory. And that's not just a someday at the end of history we will share in his resurrection glory. But already now by faith we begin to share in that resurrection glory. Already by faith, we see him sitting at the right hand of the Father. Already by faith, we have been raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is our present identity. So in Galatians 2.20, when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, I have been identified with him in his suffering. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is our present reality in Christ. Now, our understanding of this, and to be honest, our experience of this, is still pretty fragmentary. This is the, there's the already, but there's also the not yet. We are sanctified in Christ Jesus, but we are not yet what we shall be. And this is really where we are in the first part of chapter 4, because chapter 4 fleshes out what Paul means by this language, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. And next time we'll look at how that blameless and holiness is connected to abounding in love, That's because holiness and love always go together. Francis Schaeffer used to say that you can counterfeit holiness. That's called legalism. And you can counterfeit love. That's called permissiveness. But you cannot counterfeit holiness and love at the same time. Whoever, I, mean, I suppose somebody could, you, you could try. If you, if you want to try to be both legalistic and permissive at the same time, you can try, but I don't recommend it. Holiness and love go together. Holiness is not cold and rigid, but warm and beautiful. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Justice is not harsh and cruel. Neither is mercy and love a license to get away with anything. Paul is showing us holiness and love in this opening section. I I realize we're looking at holiness today and love next time, but let's keep them together in our minds and hearts because that's what Paul's doing. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul signals a new section with his, finally then, my brothers. He's moving towards his conclusion. He's wanting to give them a, a number of exhortations, things that he wants them to remember. And the first point is a basic summary of Paul's doctrine of sanctification. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, present reality, that you do so more and more, ongoing progressive. Paul speaks of our sanctification as having both that already and the not yet. 
You are doing this, and we urge you to do it more and more. Our shorter catechism says it this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. We are renewed, present reality, in the whole man, after the image of God. Our sanctification, there is a definitive component to our sanctification. We are sanctified in Christ. Our confession of faith says this more, more fully. It's they who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. So, now, how does this work? Well, listen, he's, the, the confession says, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. Definitive. This is the definitive break with sin that Paul speaks of. Sin no longer has dominion, lordship over us. Jesus is Lord. Not sin, not death, not the devil. Jesus is Lord. He has dominion. Not just will, but does already. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. The old man is dead. Think of Paul's, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's sanctification language. Now that doesn't mean that the struggle is over. As our confession of faith puts it, not only is the the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, put to death. And they, more and more quickened, brought to life, and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Or as Paul says it here, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. There is that more and more. It's wherever you are in the Christian life, what's the next step? It's one of those things that when I was, when I was in college, a friend of mine put, had a, drew this on the board and it was, a, it was a helpful diagram. It's really simple. Here's, here, here's, here's our progress in the Christian life. Oh, I, I know it's more like... But here's our... Let's just, let's just make it a, a, a simple line. But as we prog- make progress in the Christian life, we see more and more how, where we ought to be. And so we continue, as we grow in grace, to realize, oh, I have so much further than I thought. And that's not a bad thing. That should actually encourage you more and more. What is the next step? I mean, if, if God had told me 30 years ago where he wanted me to be today, I would have been like, what? No, that, that's why he doesn't tell you 30 years in advance. He shows you when you need to see it, when you need to know it. What's the next step? More and more. And that more and more is what Paul focuses on in verses 3 to 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that may surprise us, because you might think, well, just, just one thing? Sexual immorality is the only thing that Paul's concerned about with your sanctification? 
in some of his epistles, Paul will cast the net more broadly and deal with multiple topics. But in 1 Thessalonians, he treats one. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Namely, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and conversely, that you know how to control your own body in holiness and honor. Because sanctification is never just about, don't do the bad thing. If it's just don't do the bad thing, well, what am I supposed to do instead? And that's where Paul will include the good thing. Live as a person of holiness and honor in your sexual life. Now, why does Paul focus on sexual immorality? There are two basic reasons. First, uh, it was a major problem in his day, I mean, as it has been in every day. But why is it a major problem? Indeed, this is the second thing. This is the other reason why Paul focuses on this one. It's because when Scripture talks about our sexuality, Scripture weaves together sexuality and worship, both negatively, idolatry and spiritual adultery, but then also, what is our sexuality for? Well, God created us after his own image. And when he created us after his own image, he made us male and female. In Genesis 5, verse 1, we're told this. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man, Adam, when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. When we have children, we reproduce the image of God. The sexual relation is how humanity continues to reproduce the image of God. I mean, just to say uh, the obvious, if nobody ever had sex again, then humanity would cease to exist. Because that's how the image of God is brought forth. The sexual relation is is how we reproduce God's image. And so not surprisingly, holiness in our sexual relationships is at the heart of our sanctification. Now, I realize that sometimes this sounds like Christians are just saying, you shouldn't have sex until you're married. Now, that's a true statement. But we're saying something more. Because that's just the negative statement. Don't do that. The positive statement is that the sexual relation is holy and beautiful and good. So let's look at what Paul is saying here. And if we focus on what, on, on what he's doing, we'll see this. When he says that we should abstain from sexual immorality, uh, the word he uses here is porneia, which refers particularly to fornication, sexual relations outside of marriage. He doesn't use the word adultery because adultery has a specialized meaning of sexual relations between two people, at least one of whom is married to somebody else. Sexual immorality, porneia, is a broader term that refers to sexual relations outside of marriage. And importantly, it's the word used in Acts 15 when the Jerusalem Council decided that Gentiles do not need to keep all the Mosaic regulations, and instead they write to the churches. Now, remember, Paul came to Thessalonica in Acts 17, right after the Jerusalem Council in chapter 15. So this is very much, and we're told that when Paul went around, he, he, he delivered the decisions of the council. So he's reminding them of what he taught them about what the Jerusalem Council had said. What had they said? 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you, Gentiles, no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality, porneia. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. In chapter 1, Paul had said that the Thessalonians had turned from idols to the living God. So if, they've, if you've turned away from idols and from the things sacrificed to idols, and the, then the other thing you need to remember is turning away from porneia, turning away from the sexual idolatry that used to control you. And this is just as true today as it ever was. What is it that fires your imagination? The gods of the nations want you to be fixated on sex. I used to say our culture, but let's be clear about it. It's the gods of the nations. It's other gods. It's other powers that want you to do this. And our culture is simply living in bondage to other gods. So let's not call it anything other than what it is. It's the same idolatry that is bound up with the same sexual immorality And so we should call it what it is. This is the same thing going on today as was happening 20 centuries ago when Paul's writing this letter. What is it that fires your imagination? The sexual images that are bombarding you will distract you from the one true God. And one of the main things that distinguished the early Christians from Roman culture was their sexual ethic, the sexual holiness of the early Christians. And this becomes one of the most powerful reasons for the spread of the gospel throughout the ancient and medieval world. Because there's something that seems a little bit quirky. I mean, most of your ancestors, looking around, I'd say probably a large percentage of you have sort of northern and western European ancestry at some point back there. Most of your ancestors were converted by monks. And one of the things that, that the... The, the European peoples back then were struck by was these were people who were so passionately committed to following Jesus that they were willing to abstain from sex, period. And that struck them as being weird. But are we so passionately committed to following Jesus that whether we have sex or not isn't the point? A a holy sexual ethic is not repressive. A holy sexual ethic burns with a holy fire, a fire that does not consume and destroy, but gives life and joy and peace. Because for the Christian, the holy sexual ethic is not fixated on my wife. I referenced 1 Corinthians 6.13 earlier when Paul says, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. And... God will destroy them both. But then he adds that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I suspect many modern Christians would have said, oh, no, no, the way I would, I would write this is the body is not for sexual immorality, but for marriage. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says the body is not for sexual immorality, porneia, but for the Lord. And the next verse explains it. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? If, if sexuality was simply for marriage, then the single person would have no purpose for their sexuality. But Paul says that the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord Jesus. And that's true whether you're married or whether you're single. A holy sexual ethic is not repressive, but expressive of our longing for Jesus Christ himself. And that's why if, if our sexual drives and desires are heading any other direction, they're heading the wrong direction. Because Paul's point is not simply that we abstain from sexual immorality, but positively that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, the translation of this verse is a little difficult because the Greek could mean at least two distinct things. Uh, a more wooden translation would read that each, that each one of you should know how to acquire or possess, you can translate it either way, his vessel in holiness and honor. Okay, let's start with vessel. Vessel could mean your body, or it could mean a certain part of your body, uh, Tonight we'll be looking at 1 Samuel 21, where David says, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition, the vessels of the young men, that's the same, in the Septuagint translation, it's the same word, the vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey, how much more today will their vessels be holy? It's a euphemistic expression. We do that in English too. And, and that's where... This is referencing back to the Leviticus principles that even lawful intercourse with your wife rendered you unclean. And it's not because of anything sinful about sexual relations. Actually, it's the opposite. The sexual relation of the two becoming one flesh is a picture of the union of Christ and his bride. And the proper use of the seed is for the womb. So the fact that there's a little bit of a mess afterward is where the idea of uncleanness comes from. Now, if you want the details on that, there's the Leviticus series. You can go back and listen to it. But, so that's one, okay, so vessel could mean your body or a certain part of your body. The other possibility is vessel is also used sometimes to refer to your wife. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter refers to the wife as the weaker vessel, uh, also in the context of, of honoring her. And so how you interpret the noun vessel will affect how you translate the verb. Now, the verb, to acquire or to obtain, uh, is also used in the Old Testament in Ruth 4 when Boaz says, I have obtained, same verb, a wife. So Paul could be saying, this is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to obtain a wife in holiness and honor, like Boaz, not like the Gentiles, who take concubines and slave girls or boys for their own selfish pleasure. Or Paul could be using the secondary meaning of the verb, that each one of you know how to control his own vessel in holiness and honor, practicing chastity, which includes both sexual faithfulness within marriage and continence as singles. My hunch is, this is probably one of those moments where Paul had one of these two in his mind, but if you said, oh, I thought you meant the other, he'd say, huh, I can see how you got there. That works too. Good point. So, whichever way you take it, it, keep, it works as you keep going. Because it's not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. 
whether Paul is talking about how to acquire and live with a wife, or whether Paul is talking about sexual self-control in any situation, the same point works. You are not supposed to think about marriage in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. And you are not supposed to think about your own sexual desires in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Now, there's two different words for uh, for lust in Greek, and both of them are used here, and that's why it's translated the passion of lust, the lusting for lust. There are two, two different words. There's pathos, which in Greek always refers to an inordinate passion in the New Testament. It's never used for a proper affection. Uh, Romans 1.26 is one of its usages, where God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Colossians 3.5, Paul uses it in his list of inordinate desires. And then here, where he speaks of the passion of lust. Now, the second term used here is epithumia, which is most often translated desire, sometimes lust. And out of its 38 uses in the New Testament, only three are positive. 35 times it's used negatively, three times it's used positively. It ordinarily refers to our disordered desires. Now, I know, I've... You're curious now. What are those three? What are the three things that we're, that we're supposed to desire? Okay, let me start there. Luke twenty-two fifteen. Jesus tells his disciples, with desire, with epithumia, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Proper desire is when Jesus wants to eat the Passover with his disciples. Philippians one twenty-three. Paul says, I have a desire, epithumia, to depart and be with Christ. Paul's proper desire, ordinate desire, is to be with Jesus. And the third use, we just heard a couple weeks ago, at the end of chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul says, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire, epithumia, to see your face. So what are the proper desires? To be with God. And to be with his people. Hmm. Sounds an awful lot like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yep. What are the proper desires? Love for God and neighbor. All other desires, if they're not or- oriented towards those two, they are improper desires. Everything else is leading away from God. Think of how John says this in 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, remember the world that God created, but still, now the world in rebellion against God. For all that is in the world, the desires, epithumia, of the flesh, the desires, epithumia, of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And what is the will of God? That you love the Lord your God, that you love your neighbor as yourself. John says that our our desires, the desires of the flesh, our, our bodily desires, food, drink, sex, the desires of the eyes, our intellectual desires to know, understand, and see, our pride and possessions, our desire for stuff and status, reputation and fame. John says... All these things are passing away. These things are not from the Father. What is from the Father? Well, what does God himself say? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Love God with every part of you. Love God so entirely that everything you do, everything you do, is done out of love for Him. I mean, to put it simply, why would you make love with your spouse? Because you love God. And you're seeking to love Him. Why would you... Why would you be be holy and chaste as a single person? Because you love God and you desire to be with Him. That's what should drive everything we do. What's, What's happening in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that Paul is applying this basic principle to sexual desire. You live in a sex crazed culture just like Paul did. The Roman author Cicero, who lived shortly before Paul, said that in his day, women often counted the years by which husband they had. Divorce was so rampant that, yeah, if you made it five, seven years in a marriage, that was was pretty good. Next. And the way you got a divorce in Paul's day was simple. You walked out the door and said, I'm not coming back. Marriage over. If in those days there was no such thing as common property, If you're married, your property belongs to you individually, not to your spouse. And and if you weren't ready to get married yet, you could always take a concubine, a lower class wife. We today call it a live-in girlfriend. But her children would not qualify as heirs, and so if you then decided to get married, you would just get rid of her and her children, who would then be left to fend for themselves. And... In Paul's day, prostitution was not only legal, but encouraged. It was largely assumed that young men would practice on prostitutes, whether male or female. And if you're thinking, wow, that sounds messed up, you'd be right. It actually sounds an awful lot like our culture, too. What Paul is saying to to the Thessalonians, he's saying to us, We need to have a different way of thinking about these things, seeing these things. And he warns us... To, to, to do this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Uh, and brother is used generically, brother or sister. And transgress refers to sin against God. And wronging, or defrauding, exploiting, cheating, refers to what you do to your neighbor. Sexual immorality, fornication, Sexual relations outside of marriage are not only a transgression against God, but they also wrong or defraud our brothers and sisters. To be clear, when you look at porn, you're not only transgressing against God, you are also defrauding your brother and sister because you're actually paying for them to do this. Uh, Don't make excuses. Don't say, oh, I didn't pay anything for that. No, no. If nobody's eyeballs were watching, they wouldn't be in business. So... It's when we do, when we engage in that, we are saying we, we are contributing to the defrauding and, and exploiting of our brothers and sisters. We need to be serious about sexual holiness. And we also need to be serious about Paul's more and more. We know from Paul's letters that sexual ethics were a mess in the first century. Even in the churches, things were not the way they should be. And Paul's response is both serious and gracious. He is both just and merciful, holy and loving. Because what do you do when you're in the middle of the mess? I recently spoke with a young bachelor who's reached his 30s and he's 
more recently become a Christian, or he sort of been a Christian, but then he sort of strayed, what, what, however you want to call that. And he had several sexual partners, and now he regrets all those memories, all those complications of the two becoming one flesh and pulling back apart again. And now he wants to get married, but he's got so much baggage, he's not sure who would take him. That's where, when the gospel comes, the gospel comes to each of us where we are, not where we should be someday, but where we are. And the gospel comes and says, what's the next step? It's not sort of pretending it didn't happen and starting over. It's saying, no, what's the next step? How do we walk the next step more and more in becoming more and more what we are called to be? And Paul makes a pretty strong statement of how God looks at this because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Why does God care so much about our sexual practice? Because he made us for himself. The body is not for sexual immorality but for the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus is for the body. There is a wholeness and a beauty and a richness in knowing Christ Jesus. The sexual relation is supposed to be a picture of that. It's a beautiful picture. But the Lord wants you for himself. And verse 7 is really the heart of Paul's point. For God has not called us for impurity, that is the word uncleanness, but in holiness. In Leviticus 15 where it talks all about menstrual uncleanness, that's this word. How that uncleanness defiles the tabernacle. That's this word. And then in Leviticus 16 where it talks about the high priest making atonement for the holy place for the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Because that impurity is removed in the holiness of true worship. Sexual holiness and right worship are connected throughout the scriptures. When we distort that picture, we transgress against God and we wrong our brothers and sisters. We need to be clear. The sexual relation is good. It is beautiful. It is true. The problem, as with all our desires, is that we have perverted something that is good and true and beautiful and made it into something selfish and twisted and ugly. But God has not called us for impurity, for uncleanness. He has not joined us to himself so that we might gratify our sinful lusts. Rather, he has called us in holiness. Not just for holiness. He's not just talking about that someday part. In holiness, he has called us. He has called us out of darkness into light. We are no longer who we once were. How are we to walk more and more? Well, it is because he has already made us holy. The dominion of the, of the whole body of sin has been destroyed. He has joined us to himself. And whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, now dwells in us. The church is the bride of Christ. We have been joined together in one body so that we, as his bride, might be fruitful and multiply with our heavenly bridegroom. The Lord has not called us for impurity, for uncleanness, but in holiness. And he has given to us his Holy Spirit, that his Spirit might continue to work in us more and more. Now, I also need to say that it's 
Not just sexual impurity for the singles. Sexual impurity within marriage is also a problem. It is a transgression against God and our spouse. When Paul says we should conduct ourselves sexually in holiness and honor, that means that the way I treat my wife must always be in holiness and honor. If I'm selfish, if I'm seeking my own pleasure, that's not holiness and honor. If I lust after my wife, I am not loving her. Holiness is hard. Holiness is, is never easy. Holiness is not what comes naturally to us. Keeping my eyes fixed upon Jesus when I'm with my wife is challenging. But that's what Paul means when he says controlling your vessel in holiness and honor. It's not just don't do the bad things, now go have fun. No. It's every bit as much. Be holy in all your conduct. If all you do is abstain from wrong desires, selfish desires, that's not holiness. Holiness is the path where the further you go down that path, the further you see and that you should be. And that should encourage you. Because wherever you find yourself on that path, wherever you find yourself on that path, the Spirit of God meets you and calls you to take the next step. Oh Lord God, help us, because we need to take the next step. We need to walk more and more in this holiness that you have given us, that we might live as your holy people, that we might have that sanctified imagination that is seeing the glory of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, pursuing, knowing, and loving you in all things. Help us to walk in humility and holiness all our days, for Jesus' sake. Amen.